You know why I'm so passionate about music to code by? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than four bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only three bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1374, with guest Steve Sanderson. Recorded Thursday, October 20th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, Steve Sanderson is here today. We're going to be talking to him in just a few minutes about JavaScript services. How are you doing, Richard? Are you back in your booth for good? Well, I, I've turned my office into the booth now, right? So, uh, yeah, um, the basement is still not done. And uh, this show is publishing in the middle of November, which would make it almost exactly a year since the flood has happened. Yeah. So, uh, we're just, you know, down to the niggling details, a couple of lights, a couple of trims, that kind of thing. But... I've got my whole recording bay properly assembled. I'm on the the uh, broadcast arm. I've got the baffling in place. So uh, all the computers are on the swing arm, so they're all perfectly located. I'm in my comfy chair with a big screen in front of me and my microphone in the right place. Uh, life could be way worse than this, my friend. Who could ask for more? I couldn't ask for much more. That's great. I just did a uh, great recording session this weekend in the studio, so things are a little discombobulated here. But uh, recording a new album for a local band called The River Gods. That's which cool. I think everybody who listens to the show is going to love. They're like Americana rock. I feel like, you know, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Hootie and the Blowfish, that kind of sound. They're really good. All right. Enough about them. Let's roll the crazy music because I got something relevant for Ooh. today's Better Know a Framework. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? All right, so as you know, I, I have this little secret, a little tool that tells me, you know, what's trending in social circles in terms of open source software and, you know, even freemium software. And this is one that uh, people are using. It's Circle CI. So oh, if yeah. you go to 1374.pwop.me or circleci.com, this is uh, Circle CI is a continuous integration uh, and delivery platform. And uh, it's essentially containerized, which is what I like about it. Oh, interesting. And their customers include Facebook, Nextdoor, Fastlane, GoPro, Kickstarter, Percolate, Spotify, Segment. Those are the eight that they have listed on their website. But the thing is, if you just want one container and one concurrent build, it's free. Nice. And each additional container is 50 bucks a month. 
Okay. Yeah. And so there's options to just get started for free, which I love. I love that. Yeah. And then you well, can just dial it up. No, it's the, it's the old, you know, the first hits free. If yeah. it's really awesome, you'll be addicted. And then, you know, if you need to use it some more, you'll pay more. But and I really just like the way it's going. You know, back in the days when Windows desktop software was uh, was everything anybody knew. Right. You had to go through the vendors, you know, channels and hoops in order to do that. And now it's just a dial on a website. I just love that. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it looks like continuous integration. Like, yeah. Uh, another tool to look at for uh, the right way to go about it. Clearly web-focused. Yep, clearly web focused. All right, Richard, who's talking to us today? I grabbed a comment off of Steve's last show. That was 1075 when we were talking about building single page applications with Knockout back in December of 2014, which is entirely too long ago. Yeah. Uh, And a whole rack of great comments there. But I really like this one from Patrick Kelly, admittedly two years old now. He says, I really like this show so much so that I listened to it twice. Hmm. It really changed my thinking about single page application frameworks. One of the key statements for me was when Mr. Sanderson was giving the view that he wouldn't use a SPA framework for a website unless that website had a login screen. Hmm. Totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. Also, the acknowledgement from someone as clever as he is that SPA frameworks have a very steep learning curve was so refreshing. He was completely honest about his own knockout framework, balancing out the pros and the cons in an unbiased fashion. And Steve Sanderson is near the top of my pile when it comes to great IT thinkers. Yes. Mine too. I completely agree. Absolutely. And uh, just, a, you know, I also like the fact that he speaks with his code. <laughs> he, he has opinions about how things should work, and then he makes things that work that way. Yeah. That's hard to argue with. That's true. Uh, so, Patrick, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet. We throw him in a container. <laughs> and give it an IP address. Yeah, throw him in a container, give it an IP address. You should see the container full of tweets we have now. Oh, my God. Okay, let's bring on Mr. Sanderson. Steven Sanderson is based in Bristol in the UK and works for Microsoft on the ASP.NET team. Currently, his focus is on making the platform as excellent as possible for people building rich client-side apps with JavaScript frameworks. Secretly, he's also an aspiring game developer. (laughs) We're going to find out about that. Steve has been active in the open source community for a long time, of course. He started the Knockout JS project and regularly blogs at blog.stevensanderson.com. And that's Stephen with a V, not a PH. Welcome back, Mr. Sanderson. Thank you for having me back. It's good to speak to you both again. Good to speak to you. What's up with the aspiring game developer? Have you been doing something that uh, we should know about? Oh, yeah. Well, I hope everybody will know about it at some point. Uh, It's a little project that I've got going on the side. I've been able to take some time off from my work at Microsoft and uh, do a bit of game development. Yeah, so it's it's fun working on a completely different type of software. I'm working on um, a mobile racing game uh, for iOS and Android called Freak Racing, uh, which is not shipped yet, except for people in Ireland who, who... where it is shipped already. Mm. Uh, everyone else is going to have to wait a little bit for the final version to come soon. And uh, what platform are you writing it in? I'm using Unity, yeah. which is a lot of fun. It's uh, <laughs> certainly uh, the most fun I've had with uh, writing software since I was uh, a lot smaller and younger than I am now. I it's, totally it's really agree. 
I totally agree about Unity 3D. It's 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 great fun, and I also have used it as a, a teaching tool to get kids, uh, younger kids, interested in programming in general, just because it's so cool. Yeah, it is. It's very visual. It's very interactive, very quick to get interesting things done. So yeah, I sh- should imagine it's going to be very popular with uh, people for learning, definitely. Now, are you also creating your own 3D meshes and, and objects? Because I think that's where a lot of us programmers sort of, you know, throw up our hands and say, oh, I can't make anything that looks halfway decent. Or are you working with an artist? I have uh, outsourced some of the artwork, yes. Yeah, so I've, I've bought in quite a lot of stuff, like stock models. I, I paid somebody to build some specific things that I wanted. Um, but I've also uh, learned to use a bunch of different uh, software systems for creating artwork, for, uh, for example, creating things like skies. There are an entire software packages just for making pictures of skies yeah. um, and, you know, software packages for making terrains and things like that. So when you learn to do that stuff, which anybody can you know you can build it yourself it just takes a bit of time and a bit of money (laughs) you can spend a lot of money on this these digital assets can't you oh yeah sure you can yeah yeah well that's so cool i wish you the best of luck what's the name of the game again freak racing freak racing awesome that's right well we'll look forward to that so uh what we're here to talk about javascript services and i noticed that in the notes that's one word JavaScript services. <laughs> yeah, that's the name of the GitHub repository, hence it being one word. But it's not really a much of a brand name in itself. It's more just an internal name for for the repo on GitHub. Oh. Um, really, the thing that we're shipping is a set of NuGet packages, a set of NPM packages, and perhaps most importantly, a set of project templates. Um, and these are all named after what they individually are. And JavaScript services is just a name for the for the collection of all of that stuff and the repository it, it sits inside. Okay, so let's dive into it. What is it all about? Well, it's about trying to make ASP.NET a really good platform for building single-page applications on. And we've talked to a lot of people, and I've been thinking about it for years, and basically the big picture is that it's really complex and difficult to make a a good single page application because the set of technologies that you will want to use are uh, extensive to say the least you'll be wanting to combine like five ten different libraries just to get started with um you'll be making a lot of architectural decisions a lot of decisions about how files should be laid out uh, about how interactions between server and client are going to work that sort of thing and putting all that stuff together is something that you could easily spend days or weeks on before you even get to coding anything that's unique to your project. So it's really plumbing. Yeah. So this is plumbing code, as Richard says, for, for using your favorite, uh, you know, let's say front end client, uh, tool for the, of the day, like angular or even knockout Aurelia, those kinds of things. It doesn't replace those, does it? No, it's um, it doesn't replace the frameworks themselves, but is a way of using them effectively. So let's say you want to build uh, an Angular 2 application and use ASP.NET Core on the server. Well, that's great, but how are you going to make these things work together? Like, are they going to go in separate projects? Are they going to sit together? Um, are they going to know about each other's routing systems? Uh, how are you going to get the build process to work? It should be writing your code in TypeScript, probably. You need it to get built. Um just there's so many things that you need to do to make your project into a real thing. It's not like you just 
you know, install yeah. Angular 2 and start work. You know, there's hundreds of more decisions that you need to make. Sure. Um, and so this gets people started a lot faster. So you could almost think of it like um, JavaScript middleware. Um, there are, there is literally JavaScript middleware in the, uh, among the packages. Yeah. But I think the thing that most people will just download and use are project templates. Okay. So, I mean, everybody knows what project templates are sure. and we've got, we've got ones for Angular 2, for React, for React with Redux and for Knockout. And you can just file a new project on one of those and you get yourself a, a very nice, clean ASP.NET Core site with the relevant client-side library in place and uh, a very nice modern build system and some yeah. other interesting and um, advanced features like the ability to render your client-side application on the server and that sort of thing. So you use Yeoman, basically, or can we use also download like Visual Studio templates? Uh, yeah, so at the moment, we've got those f four project templates that I just mentioned. They're all available in a Yeoman generator. And there's also... Uh, the Angular 2 one in particular, we've picked this one out because it seems to be the most popular of them. Uh, that's also available as a Visual Studio template. So if you download the ASP.NET Core template pack, which Mads Christensen made, you will find our Angular 2 template inside there as well. This is very exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's good stuff. It does remind me of uh, the show we did on Angular CLI, which seemed to be very much focused on automating the rapid assembly of the basic web template so that you could get coding right away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they do. They are tackling similar problems there, the, the, the getting started problem. The key difference is that Angular 2 CLI is just about Angular 2 on its own. Obviously, it right. doesn't want to force you to use any one particular server-side framework. Um, and although it's it's nice that that can get you started quickly, it doesn't address a lot of the problems that you're going to deal with when you want to host your application in a particular server stack. And that's the specific thing that we're trying to address with these templates. So are, is it specific to like a deployment to Azure or deployment on IIS? Obviously, you've got to make some opinions when you go to, to do the setup. Yeah, it's not specific to a particular deployment target. I okay. guess the thing that we're opinionated about is um, more than anything, I suppose, the build system. So uh, we're using Webpack as a build system in this. Um, I don't know if you've done any shows on that lately, no. but for for people who are not familiar with it, that they will probably have been familiar with something like uh, Grunt or Gulp or something else like that. Um, the the key thing that's different with Webpack and the reason why we've chosen it is, well, okay, the reason why we've chosen it is because it's kind of dominant in the whole front-end web development world at the right. moment for at least the last year or so. It's been the the prevalent tool. Uh, the The core idea within Webpack is to be able to understand the dependencies between different parts of your code base. So for example, you might have some a TypeScript file and because it represents a an Angular or React or Knockout component, it might reference some HTML as a view. Mm -hmm. And inside that HTML file, it might reference the CSS file. And inside your CSS file, it might reference a font file or something like that. So you've got this chain of dependencies there going TypeScript to uh, HTML to CSS to font. And Webpack understands all that stuff. Like it, you, you can install loaders for different types of technology that knows how to uh, detect when one thing depends on another thing. And it builds up this model of how everything 
relates to everything else. And then you can configure how it packages all the things that get discovered through that dependency process. You might say, for example, I want all of my CSS to get bundled up into a separate CSS file. Or you might say, actually, I want to inline that all into my HTML or something like that. You can configure it in any way you can think of. And it will understand your dependencies and it will produce the bundles in whatever format you want it to do. So it's very uh, flexible. And, um, and this is something we dealt with back in, in Strange Loop. It's like I want to organize my data on the dev side so that it's easy to find, easy to maintain, you know, broken down by responsibility area and so forth. But that's not always optimal on the deployment side. In fact, it's never optimal on the deployment side. Absolutely. So Webpack yeah. sort of automating, packaging up to this. So did we talk about minification and uh, compression and all the other things we can do to totally optimize the the pages coming out the other side? Yeah, it does all that sort of stuff. and. Other stuff that's maybe a little um, different to what you would have done with other technology as well. For example, you might say, I want to mark out this particular subset of my application and say that stuff gets lazily loaded on demand, whereas everything else gets right. preloaded wow. up front, yeah. that kind of thing. And it doesn't change your code in any way. That's just changing your Webpack config. And you know it can produce these bundles in different formats like that. And, and again, that's a way of managing another kind of plumbing, the optimization for performance like that is, you know, an impairment to development if you have to de- de- work in that space all the time. Right? Writing the code for a lazy load, while not rocket science, it's not killer hard, it's just more plumbing. I don't want to see it. Yeah, it's just one more thing that's going to keep you from, you know, hello web. <laughs> that's right. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it takes absolutely. that much longer. Undo, right? Like if I go, I'm, I'm worried about the delay of loading this particular package, Right. So I, I go to the trouble of, of making an asynchronous loader for it. I get that up and running, and it doesn't make any difference at all. Do I take it out? Probably not. Yeah. So the fact that you can do it sort of with a markup way, say that should be lazy loaded and so forth, then it's pretty easy to take it back out again if it's not actually beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think another thing that we've seen with Webpack is that features that would have been actually too hard to implement are now commonplace. Uh, one that comes to mind is the hot module replacement feature. So with Webpack, it's fairly common to say, um, when my files on disk change, I want the changes to get automatically injected into my web browser in development mode. So I edit an HTML file on disk, it just changes in my web browser. I don't have to reload the page or anything like that. Same even with code. Like you might change some TypeScript change some TypeScript code, you press save, and then your new code is in the browser already without even reloading. Wow. You're extending the life of my F5 key. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it means that it's really useful if you're debugging, for example, because if you've got the debugger window open and you've got some all kinds of objects that you've set up in the browser's memory and you're inspecting and so on, when you make your code change to see if you've fixed a particular bug, you don't really want to lose all that state and then start nope. reproducing the problem again mm. from the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's really handy that you can just change it and then see whether you fixed it. Um, that's kind of that's, astonishing, too, that the debugger would deal with the fact that the underlying code is just changed. Yeah, well, it's yeah, the debugger doesn't mind particularly because the way these the code has been loaded is in a very modularized format in the first place. So, right. you know, the, you've got different... You've got one JavaScript module that depends on another module, which depends on another module, and so on. And all the hot module replacement feature is doing is um, basically just saying, I want to, whenever somebody requests this module, change the the code that it's referring to. So right. it's not it's not crazy as far as the debugger is concerned. 
Um, but it's the sort of thing that you probably wouldn't implement on your own. Well, no, I no. certainly. I so. You know what I love about this is it's very much the .NET philosophy of taking care of as much plumbing as possible so you can get to, you know, here's my app, hello world, whatever, as soon as you possibly can. I think mean, that's what Microsoft has been so good at for so long is taking away that the, all the headaches of the of the internals. And this is just an extension of that into the world of JavaScript. Well, I hope so. But we can't take credit for Webpack, of course. We didn't make that. No, but, no, no, but it's. Yeah. But I, I'm talking about the whole, the you know, the whole, uh, the whole JavaScript services uh, package. Yeah, okay. uh, routing, yeah. for example, uh, doesn't seem like you know on the surface of it before you start an Angular project or a Knockout project or whatever that that routing is going to be an issue that you'd have to write any code around it. You know, what, what's the big deal? I have a, a web API maybe, and I add a route and, and Bob's your uncle. What, what are some of the problems that people run into? Well, hopefully it's not critical problems, but you do have two different routing. I'll pronounce it routing if you don't mind. So That's I don't okay. feel myself being strange. I'm going um, okay, to so be right back. I'm going to route my Android phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, that is, yeah. Uh, no comment. <laughs> Let's cut this. <laughs> All, All right. right routing. So Tell us about routing. About. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you've got two different routing systems. Uh, you've got your server-side one and your client-side one, and they are not the same, and they don't know about each other by default. So you've got to make the two work together. Sometimes when you are um, generating URLs on the server, you want to point to things that the client is going to know about or vice versa. And sometimes you could be in a situation where they clash in some way or where they don't handle uh, a scenario. Uh, a, a common gotcha that people face is maybe they want everything in their application um, to be mapped into their client-side application by default so that if you've got URLs like users slash five six seven or something the server doesn't know what that is but maybe your client side application does right. and so you just everything to your client but then what if someone requests something like favico.ico or whatever that thing is um and you don't have that on the server well the server's going to think oh that's just part of your angular application probably so it will route it into your client side application which of course doesn't know what that is all. And then the developer is typically going to get very confused about why the server is not returning a 404 when they thought it should. That kind of thing can trip people up. So we've put in uh, a very simple helper in these project templates that uh, tries to resolve that. So it looks at incoming requests and tries to make a slightly more intelligent judgment about whether they should be routed into the client side app or not mm. um, than you would just get by default. So it's not super clever, but it just it's just these kind of things. Just a that, little thing that yeah. takes more time absolutely. to set up. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So did you see the focus of JavaScript services is really for the developer? This doesn't impact the deployed application all that much? No, there's not There's not a massive amount of uh, production runtime stuff. So most right. of the runtime stuff we've got is development time. So it's things like tying in with Webpack to do the hot module replacement. And it's um, also uh, all the, the build setup stuff. Um, and obviously the fact that there are project templates in the first place. At production in runtime, probably the only part of this is that would be running would be the server-side pre-rendering feature. Right. Now, you don't have to have that if you don't want to, but most people who find out that they can have it do want it because it's very cool and um, has got some actual like meaningful business benefits 
as well. So the basic idea is that instead of waiting for your application to load up inside a browser and then fetch all the JavaScript and then pause all the JavaScript and mm. then fetch some initial data from the server and then build some DOM dynamically and all that stuff, which might take many, many seconds, the server has already done all that stuff completely and produced some static HTML as, as if it was just a traditional old school server-side application. Uh, so the server is going to send the pre-rendered HTML down to the browser, and then mm -hmm. the browser can display that immediately without having to wait for any JavaScript to download or anything like that. Uh, and then the usual client-side loading process takes place in the background while the user is already able to see the application. Um, so this is all so about making landing pages super fast? Yeah, it's about perceived performance primarily, right. um, but it does also have the benefit that uh, your site is definitely crawlable by search engines or anything else that right. crawls mm. things um, because they certainly don't have to run any JavaScript. Um, it also means if someone's got something like a, a no script extension turned on or something like that, then they will still see your application as opposed to just seeing a sort of blank page or something. Yeah, it will, may not to, work, but at least it's visible. Yeah, that's right. And you may want to render something into there um, that's, you know, different than people are going to see uh, when the client-side application actually starts running if you want to. Um, but it gives you the power to make choices around that if you want to. And I get a chuckle because when I see server-side pre-rendering, I say, I, I think, oh, you mean web forms. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what, were we making a comeback? You know, the, one of the big debates always was we were overloading the servers with all this client-side pre-rendering stuff. And, and so as the number of users went up, we really struggled to keep that machine running well. It's a big difference from just serving chunks of data to actually having to compute all this HTML. Mm. And here it is back again. Well, yeah, it's about I giving you that choice back, really. You know, in a lot of applications, it's genuinely useful. And if you don't want it, then just turn it off. It's entirely up to you. I don't, yeah, think, anybody, I don't think anybody ever argued the fact that web forms wasn't productive or good, or we didn't want those features as developers. But, you know, it was just the, the implementation turned out to be not so good for, you know, performance and, and scalability. Yeah, that's true. And at the time that web forms was at its high, it was before people were doing a lot of interesting stuff on the client. And so yeah, right. by the time the client side stuff took over, that was the only way of giving a really good end user experience. And so now we've got that. Can we also get the performance back that we used to have as well? Yep. So that's trying to combine those two benefits. Love it. The, the other aspect of this is that you are dependent on the client side performance. If they have a cranky old browser or they're running on a mediocre machine, that directly affects their experience on that web page, where if you've done a whole bunch of pre-rendering, it's just a lower footprint. So they, they get, again, a perceived performance experience that the page came down yeah, really quickly. That's absolutely true. And in some cases, it's not even just perceived. It's like genuine performance improvement. For example, if you're using the uh, React Redux template that we've shipped, um, Re React has got such a... Uh, well, Redux, let's say, has got such a good way of interacting with server-side rendering that when the client-side code boots up, it doesn't have to rerun any of the code that the server ran. So, right. for example, on the server, you fetched a long list of employees, say, and rendered it as HTML. Then on the client, it doesn't actually have to go and fetch that list again, and it doesn't have to walk through that list and check that the HTML matches up with what you think it should and so on. Uh, it just continues exactly where the server left off. So, so you is really a smart pre-renderer? Like, I'm presuming it's actually sending that data down in some kind of data-denominated structure 
that again can be read by the page to be used rather than just embedding it in a list. Yeah, exactly. So with Redux, the, the whole architecture is that there's this object called the store that mm -hmm. describes all of the state in your application. And Redux tr responds to when that store changes and tells React to update parts of the UI when that happens. So if we've pre-rendered your application on the server, we can take the state of the store as it was when we finished rendering, serialize it all as JSON, send it down to the client. And then when the Redux app kicks off on the client, it starts with the store and says, what jobs have I got to do? Oh, none. Everything's already been done. So I'll just not do anything. And so the browser doesn't do any work until the user starts interacting with the application. That's really interesting. And, and you know, it's, it's a balancing act between how much work is the client still doing versus uh, you know, making sure you have maximum reuse on that page that you're not essentially rendering the page twice once to keep give a snappy feel and once to make a working page. Yeah, that's right. And you're not going back to the server to fetch any data that you needed or anything like that. Yeah, right. That you've already fetched. I mean, it, it, I would argue that this kind of pre rendering benefits greatly stuff like a react redux combination. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really clean fit with it. And in fact, react is the reason why this concept of yeah. isomorphic or universal applications even emerged prior to react people sort of thought about it but no one really thought it was possible but then you know with react it actually was hey richard yeah buddy guess what time it is uh, i must be that happy time again yeah it's time to kick off my shoes and sit down and relax with a nice sweet and frosty route beer float route <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> Call back. I'm sorry. It's a little bit funny to us, Steve. <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm maybe just too. him. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you call it route beer in, in the UK. I don't even know if you've ever had root beer. Is that a, an American thing? I think it's... Um, oh, what's that old game with Guybrush Threepwood? Monkey Island. Yeah, I think it's in Monkey Island, but it's not in the real world, is it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's just in the colonies. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm just double checking on uh, on Wikipedia. I've totally a North American drink. So, yeah, he's hmm. not going to so be. It. That's why he didn't laugh. Or maybe it just wasn't funny. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> it's actually time to give away Sync Fusion Essential Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about what we like about Sync Fusion. They have over 650 components for web, desktop, and mobile applications, including great native Xamarin controls. They even have enterprise solutions with a dashboard designer and big data platform. But best of all, they're affordable. For enterprises, it's one flat fee for everything. Everyone in the enterprise. No hassle, no gimmicks, and you really get every application with no restrictions. Check them out at syncfusion.com, or you can look them up on Facebook to see how you can get started today. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Chris J. Grant. Congratulations, Chris. Golf yeah. clap for you, sir. Yeah. Chris just won the Sync Fusion Essential Studio just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that's all about, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. Because we have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. 
And uh, Stephen, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? One thing that I've had in mind for a little bit, but I probably won't do because it would be too expensive without your prize, would be to uh, refit my house with really cool lighting. So I'd love to get rid of all the light bulbs, all the down lighters and everything like that, and just put LED strips around all the ceilings. Um, I think that would be very cool. From pictures I've seen online, it looks pretty good. I think you um, and Richard are going to have to have a talk about this. Well, the joke, of course, is that we're recording this show before we record the geek out on DC lighting, yeah. but it oh, publishes really? the literally the next show after when that geek out publishes. So oh, we've already time. talked about this on .NET Rocks, but we haven't in reality talked about it. Yet. Yes. So yeah, we're in one of those little funny time warps, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Strip LED lighting is really, really cool. I'm looking at some right now. Right. Wow. I'll um I'll listen out for your show and get some tips then. And I'll uh, I'll send you my notes, man. I highly recommend it. All this low voltage okay. lighting, it's all wired with Cat Five. It's it's really impressive and uh, and incredibly power efficient. That sounds great. My only criteria would be that it has to not involve any software at all like i don't want some <laughs> horrible internet of things thing where i have to go to a web page to turn the lights on and off or anything like that yeah all of it works mechanically good but there is an rs232 interface if you decide you want to torture yourself right okay there is and so they the light controller or these little modules called wp1s have seven modes based on is it a motion sensor is it a momentary contact it is a switch and so forth and there's one mode that says programmable just stay away from that mode you don't want to go to that mode <laughs> yeah. you leave that mode this alone you'll be fine that's the end of your weekends there yeah <laughs> many i it's sitting there i'm just staring at it looking at it and looking at my latte panda going do i want to ruin my life is that something <laughs> i want to do it's right there it's uh, look at me in the face it's imminent. It, it, I feel like, and I, I'll, I'll have said this on the show on Thursday, I feel like it's still a bit in the hacker space. Like, you have to be into this to make it worthwhile. But the product is astonishingly good. Like, what you actually get when you get everything done right is really neat. Hmm. Brilliant. Very good. And five grand will get you started. I, I'm, I pretty much costed it out. It more or less cost me the same amount as a conventional lighting system with good with macro dimming so it uh it's worth it not not especially expensive okay great uh, i wonder what the lifespan of the thing is going to be. absolutely and we were right at mentioning react redux and you said something i thought was very profound which is the impact that react has had on on the web development thinkers. And I think of you, sir, as one of the best web development thinkers I've ever met. Talk to me about this, because I don't disagree with you at all, but I don't know that we really understand what's happened in this sort of development philosophy. Okay. Well, React has been extremely innovative, I would say. Like, maybe back in 2010 or so, the the new things around that time were stuff like Knockout and Angular 1 and, and so on, and they followed a particular pattern around Mm -hmm. um, model view separation and updating templates based on data and so on. And um, that was very much the state of the art at that time. And it's a sort of tried and tested uh, approach, which is still going strong today with Angular 2 and Knockout still going and so on. Um, But when React came along, it took a different approach. And and they've innovated in, in quite a few ways. So 
two of the um well one of the biggest things that they've done is that they basically dispensed with the idea of having any sort of declarative view at all and right. they made their components into purely procedural code so you in a react component it's got a render method you call it and it returns some html basically but instead of just doing it with a messy load of string concatenations they produce this quite nice um, api for uh, returning hierarchies of controls and so on and then on top of that they created this syntax called jsx where you uh, write your html directly in line in your uh, javascript or uh, in typescript the it's called tsx and this means that you do things like you see code which is like return space and then an html element and it, it just feels like you're passing the literally html elements around in your code um and it, it looks uh, very smooth and slick and and works in a very nice, clean way. And then React itself, uh, as the actual UI library, it's got this particular abstraction about how data is passed around from one place to another and how uh, components get their properties from their parents and so on. Uh, that allows React to be very efficient about how it updates the UI. But also, it gives React a first-class understanding of the the data that exists in your application, which makes it possible to do things like have your application run on the server and then transfer that down to the client. Uh, because unlike something like Angular or Knockout, which are uh, which don't know about the internal states of your component, Angular sorry React itself does know about the internal state because it's mm. very strict about how that state needs to exist and how it needs to pass around from one place to another. So mm. you can run it on the server and then you can transfer that state down to the client and carry on the execution uh, in a way that's just not even meaningful um, if the framework didn't inherently know about the state of your application. And it created quite a stink when it first came along because it, it seems so philosophically different from everything we've been doing in the MVC, MVVM world. Yeah, yes. It definitely takes a... A, you know, a more functional than ori object-oriented philosophy um, when the main alternatives definitely are very much out of the the object-oriented world and the whole history that we've got around, you know, sort of like object-oriented mm. nested hierarchies of things and, you know, an object yeah. representing a button or all that stuff that we've had um, for many years. Well, um, and, and is, so the, the, the MVC mindset to me, parallel the here is HTML, here is JavaScript, here is CSS separation of concerns mindset as well. And, and React just turned that on its head. Yeah, that's right. That was pretty, um, what's the word? I don't know. At least controversial, at least uh, mm -hmm. when that first came out. And, and yeah, you did have these JSX files that have got HTML in line. And then even more sacrilegiously than that, they started putting inline styles and things like that, which was, was scary to people at first. But now that has turned into almost standards like um, CSS modules, which are based on manipulating CSS with JavaScript, which has only come about because of the need to do it to keep things like React components isolated and clean. So yeah, it's a certain set of uh, architectural decisions that they made in the beginning that were kind of scary at the time, but they've given rise to such a lot of innovation since then. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's really interesting to see how it's come in, especially when I look at larger uh, web projects, like uh, typically internal applications built this way 
they do a better job of maintaining consistency throughout the app. It seems to me that it, you, you've got a much more control-like construction to individual elements on the pages. So that as you go from page to page, it's easy to have the same control show up everywhere. Well, that's the theory. Yeah, certainly. I, <laughs> I don't have a ton of experience of using React on a very large application. So I, I can't comment too much from personal experience. But that is what people report, yeah. And it's certainly what I've seen. I also laugh mightily that JSX is using XML. You know, the, well, yeah, we thought we were done with that instead of JSON. <laughs> but I mean, I see the arguments. It's like, are we? Is that true? Or is it actually XML is more readable in this scenario? Well, it's you know, you're producing HTML, and HTML looks a lot like XML. So yeah, it works. You know, it fits people's expectations. Hmm. Stop fighting it. It's pretty. It's hmm. pretty funny. But it's, it's just kind of amazing that this is where we've gotten to. And I and I grabbed. Uh, uh, I was going to grab the link to the CSS modules uh, page on GitHub and realize they've made a logo now that, it, you know, the famous CSS is fun with it overrunning the box. Uh, That's yeah, the logo so. for CSS modules. And just makes me so happy when I see that. When yeah. serious CSS people also <laughs> make fun of CSS, that's a good day. Yeah, <laughs> uh, It's really fascinating to me that that in just a couple of years, we really have hit a place where we take web development is not about brochureware to reach the masses, that it's become a common way to build productivity apps. That to me is extraordinary. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm not personally surprised by that, to be honest. I think that's been uh, underway for, you know, a decade and a half at least um, mm. by now. And the sort of stuff that we see coming out of standards bodies over the last five to ten years have have all been with this sort of thing in mind you know the fact that we finally moved on from uh, ECMAScript 5 to ES 2015 and 2016 you know most of the features that have gone into these specifications have been about building applications there's very little work needed just to build brochures anymore I don't think standards bodies are hugely interested in that scenario because it's largely a solved problem um, yeah. but there are you know, so many millions of developers building proper applications that get delivered in web browsers. Um, that's certainly the, the big focus of the industry. Steve, is JavaScript services only available for core? Yes, at the moment. Um, certainly the project templates are only for ASP.NET Core. Um, inside JavaScript services, there's a, a library that I haven't mentioned until now, which is called Node Services. And what that is, is a um, a way of doing runtime communication between a .NET process and a Node process. And this is how the server-side pre-rendering works. Um, you know, we run a, a copy of Angular on the server inside a hidden Node instance and so on. Anyway, the reason I'm telling you that is because that particular component uh, does not itself depend on anything in .NET Core. Uh, that will run on .NET 4.6. So if if someone's particularly excited about this and really wants to do some of the same stuff on a, a pre-ASP.NET Core project, then yeah, you could get Node services as it is, and so, then uh, work on you know doing the actual communication with an Angular or React application or whatever on your own. So you could do the SPA services and Angular services on ASP.NET Core, but Node services can run on ASP.NET. Is that yes, what I hear you saying? Right. Yeah. Okay. That is absolutely right. Yeah. And I, I, I found the, the node services on NuGet. It's, it's still considered a beta, but this is it, right? This is, this is the package. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It is a beta because, you know, we're still 
working on this internally and um and hopefully that label will not stay there for a great deal longer um but at the moment we want to reserve the right to change stuff but it's pretty well battle tested we've had many 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 hundreds of people have been using this in different projects and we've tracked down such a large number of edge case bugs it's hard to imagine there's going to be any more edge case bugs but of course there will be um but yeah it's, it's fairly uh, robust and stable right now so node services seems like just the way that you run node on ASP.NET Core. So it n- not only can you use it for JavaScript services, but for a lot of other stuff, maybe. Yeah, if I haven't heard of someone doing this, but if for some reason you wanted to write a .NET Core console application that also evaluates JavaScript and uses JavaScript libraries from NPM, then yeah, I'm sure you mm-hmm. can. You can take a dependency on this, and then you can just access any library on NPM to implement part of the application if you that's want. Cool. Yeah. We're not saying that's a good idea. No, but it's We're just possible. saying you could do it. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. gave me yeah. chills immediately. <laughs> In a lot of cases, that would be a crazy thing to do. But there are some cases where that is uh, actually a reasonable thing to do. For example, uh, at the moment, uh, .NET Core is a bit limited on what it can do around media processing. There aren't too many good libraries for you know, image manipulation or audio resampling or whatever. But of course, there's tons of that stuff on NPM for Node. So mm. if you want to just um, you know, call some of those APIs, then you can. Um, or another case would be if you're using some third-party service that, like an online software as a service thing, and they they make available an API for Node, but they haven't got around to making a .NET one. Well, shame on them, firstly. But mm-hmm. also, you can then use the Node API this way. It's all JavaScript in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and it's just an interesting way to start thinking about These are just ways of packaging JavaScript so you can execute it where you want to. Uh, and, and I'm glad that we can just consume these things, whatever environment we're working in. Yeah, absolutely. JavaScript Steve, is- are you still working on Knockout? Uh, yeah, I am. I don't do too much active work on that at the moment. There's uh, another three people on the core team and then a, a wider community around that. And they certainly take basically all of the weight of that work right now. And I am not hugely involved. Mm. Um, my involvement now is kind of more of a giving my opinions about project direction rather than, you know, implementing code. You're the um, Obi-Wan Kenobi of uh, Knockout then. <laughs> <laughs> the, the hidden guy in the corner who occasionally just says no or yes. Yeah. You, you occasionally wave your hand and things happen, right? Yeah, that's what I think, yeah. <laughs> you, the whole binding side of this, and I always thought of Knockout as that was sort of the magic strength yeah. of it, is really interesting. And it, it also calls back to React Redux, which, you know, you mentioned this briefly before the before we did the break. Just that mindset of a stash of data in your page that's updated almost independently and then notifies controls, I have new data for you. Get ready to re-render. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, Redux takes that to a, a whole extra level because rather than simply being an abstract source of data, it also requires your application to have a particular sort of pattern and life cycle around how it updates. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very abstract. It's not like model view controller. It's a completely new thing. And if if anyone's thinking that they're going to adopt Redux, well, great, you know, it is marvelous and everything. But please do be willing to spend a good day just reading stuff about it before you think that you know what's going on. Because it's not like model view controller or something else that you've probably used before. It does require you to follow these very strict functional patterns mm. uh, around your application 
data and how it updates. And the payoff from that is that you get the ability to do some cool stuff that you couldn't otherwise do. Uh, the thing that everyone always cites is the um, time travel debugging thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because of how the Redux store uh, updates, it can update both bo- f- forwards and backwards. Like you don't have to write any special code to make that happen. That's just an inherent feature of what it does. So um, if you find that your application has got a bug, then you can use the debugging tools to rewind back in time through all the previous states that your store has been in and then rewind, you know, fast forward back through time until the bug happens. And, mm. you know, that's can be very powerful as a way of um, diagnosing faults. And it also means that it's trivial to implement things like undo and redo, that sort of thing. Um, but the cost of it is that, as a developer, you just have to accept this very abstract way of um, managing state within your application that's right. very unfamiliar. Well, because you you now have this very clear delta of the modifications to state, it's easy to sort of capture that, which makes your undo, redo, to quote, time travel. My head always explodes when you say yeah. that effect. I, I completely see that. Yeah. But at what price? Because it is very... It is philosophically different as React is. No wonder the two are sitting together. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, technically, you could use Redux with something other than React. And, and I know some people are using it with Angular, but it's certainly most commonly associated with React. Yes. And it does feel, fit very nicely with that. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. Is that, did you put a steering wheel on that horse? <laughs> what did you just do? Wait a second. Yeah, I can't imagine Redux and, and Angular getting along. That seems very difficult. So for JavaScript services, is there a reference architecture or a sample program or a walkthrough or something that we can use to get started? Or um, for that matter, uh, are you planning to use JavaScript services internally for any Microsoft properties? Okay. Well, for sample applications... I think hopefully the most useful sample is the thing that people are going to see when they do file new project because they don't just get an empty project. They get an application with three different pages on it that do a few different things, one of which is an example of how to fetch some data and and so on. So I'm hoping that that gets people started with uh, a lot of the basics. For a slightly more detailed example, uh, yes, as part of the JavaScript services repo on GitHub, there's a top-level directory called samples, and inside there, there are some examples built with uh, each of the different technologies. And in particular, there's the the famous Music Store application. Yeah, the Angular Music Store, yeah. Yeah, so... uh, People who have been around ASP.NET for a while will probably remember seeing different versions of the music store implemented with all kinds of different technologies, with you know web forms, with MVC, with you know Angular One, and so on. So we've got versions of music store implemented with Angular Two and JavaScript services, and another version of it implemented with React. So those will hopefully give you a good chance to compare them side by side, and you know see it do some slightly less than completely trivial things Um, as for using it internally well it's funny you say that it's like as if microsoft communicates with itself well enough to even know the answer to that question (laughs) (laughs) you know probably but how would i know know, yeah that's hanselman's line right we are not organized enough to be as evil as you think we are (laughs) yeah (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I work on the ASP.NET team and we don't make websites and we're not using it. But then, you know, by that rationale, we don't even use ASP.NET, you know, because we don't make websites. But other teams that do, probably they will probably use it, but we don't control it. Yeah, I was thinking of, you know, the whole using Knockout on the um, Azure portal. 
story, yeah. which was a great story for Knockout. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and as far as I'm aware, that's gone pretty well for them. And um, certainly I know that they've pushed that not just to its limits but beyond it mm. in some quite extraordinary ways that have involved extending it in all kinds of ways. And that's possible because it's quite a small library and they were able to understand it both externally and internally and make changes to it and so on that they probably wouldn't have been able to uh, make their own modifications to a much larger framework. So from that point of view, I think they've, um, they're probably pretty pleased with that choice. Steve, did you actually advocate for them to use that in the portal or did you just find out that they were using it? Oh, I, I got told. I, so I got <laughs> brought into various meetings where I was asked, you know, should we do this or not? And I was really noncommittal. I was like, well, you know, it's got its pros and cons and so on. And they also had other people who were pitching other possibilities and mm. they made their decision. It it was of no impact to me at all at that time. I didn't work on that team and I was not actually bothered whether they chose it or not, but they did choose right. to use it. And, um, and then it became a really interesting project. And so I joined the team. It's interesting. You know, and, and going back to Carl's question about is Microsoft using that, there's the sort of two aspects of that answer. One is you don't, no, there's no mechanism for you to advocate for it within the organization. And if so, elsewhere in the organization they were using it, they probably wouldn't get around to telling you. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I mean, I, I know for <laughs> sure that there's plenty of teams in Microsoft using Knockout and Angular and React, like different teams. They, right. they all exist. They, oh, and Ember as well. I know one doing that. They, they're all there. Probably everything that you know about. And for every team that uses a third-party thing, there's probably another three teams that have invented their own crazy, ill-advised thing. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a big corporation. Just just like any other large corporation with multiple development teams. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Mr. Sanderson, once again, you're blowing our minds with some great stuff you and your team are doing. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. It's been fun to talk. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a van by the end.